Happy holidays and happy new year to all of my listeners. I've had a tremendous year with the show. I've been able to attend Hascon, do coverage on the Pro Tour with Team Metagame Gurus, join Hipsters of the Coast, and even make a few YouTube videos. Thank you everyone for listening. I really appreciate you tuning in each week to hear me talk to people from the community. I'm working on a mailbag episode where I answer your questions, so if you have anything you'd like to ask me, send me an email to sam at kitchentablemagic.org, and I'll read your questions on air. Thanks! Hey everyone, great news. Kitchen Table Magic is now on Hipsters of the Coast. They're the mages with the curly beards and the vegan potion options. Hipsters of the Coast is the premier news and strategy blog for the Magic the Gathering community. They have a unique perspective on things and Kitchen Table Magic is honored to be joining their lineup. If you're listening to me right now from Hipsters of the Coast, I'm pleased to meet you. You're going to love all of the guests I have lined up for Season 3. And be sure to check out past episodes at kitchentablemagic.org. If you're new to the Hot Sea blog, head on over to hipstersofthecoast.com to get strategy and content for all of your favorite formats. Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by CardKingdom.com. Unstable is out now. Join in on all the goofy fun with contraptions, inside jokes, strange math, and squirrels. You can order it at CardKingdom.com KTM. And of course, all of those John Avon Full Art Borderless Basic Lands are in Unstable. They make a fantastic addition to any deck. Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Paragon City Games. They're a community-focused game store in Draper, Utah that cares deeply about their player base. They invite you to join their in-store stream at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames for weekly legacy and standard events. Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. In this episode, I'm talking to Brazilian Hall of Famer Paulo Vitor Dominarosa. Paulo has been on the professional scene for almost two decades, and he's the youngest player to reach 300 lifetime pro points. Recently, Paolo won Pro Tour Hour of Devastation and has the second most Pro Tour top 8s behind John Finkel. Paolo shares with us about his life as a professional Magic player, how he got started playing Magic, and his life in Brazil. Paolo also talks to us about improving at Magic, his competitive mindset, and his thoughts on his semifinals match with Yam Wing Chun at Pro Tour Hour of Devastation. I caught up with Paolo in the summer of 2017. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Paolo Vitor Damodarosa. Hi everyone, thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. I am your host, Sam Tang, and today I am here with the dreamy Paolo Vitor Damodarosa. Paolo, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for being here today, and you are joining us from Brazil, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I love the wonders of Skype. What's it like in Brazil right now? Uh, it's cold, at least for Brazil. Uh-huh. It's our winter right now, uh, but it's still pretty much the same. Never really gets super cold. Yeah, that's interesting. That's right. You are in the Southern Hemisphere. So right now in the Northern Hemisphere where I am, because I'm in Seattle, uh, when it's our summer, it's your technical winter, right? Yeah, it's the opposite. Brazil is a pretty tropical place. So um, winter for you, does it get cold? Like it doesn't snow or anything, but it does get pretty chilly or, or stormy. It Depends on where you are. Uh, I live in the, the southmost part of Brazil, which is the coldest part. So while it doesn't snow, it gets to, you know, it would be like, you know, 36 Fahrenheit or something. It's probably the lowest it usually gets. Oh, wow. That is pretty chilly. And uh, But there are some places in Brazil where it never really goes below, you know, 20 Celsius, which would probably be like 50 something Fahrenheit, even in the winter. Interesting. So definitely in the in the south of Brazil, there's Sao Paulo. That's kind of like the landmark. But where are you in relation to that? I'm like one and a half hours south of that by plane. By plane. Yeah. Sao Paulo is in the southeast uh-huh. and I'm just the south. Oh, like I'm, <laughs> my, my state borders like Argentina. Paulo, I want to talk to you more about your life as well as kind of Brazilian culture and Brazilian food. Also, you as a magic player. And like all things, we start at the beginning. So, Paulo, where did you grow up and how did you find magic? Uh, well, I grew up in Porto Alegre, which is the same place I, I, I live in. 
Uh, I found magic by reading it, reading about it in a magazine. Uh, There's a magazine about Sensei. Sensei is an anime. I don't know if you watched that in the US or not, but mm-hmm. it was very popular when I was a kid here. And I was reading a magazine about that, and there was an advertising for uh, the magic game. And I thought, well, I like card games. I like, you know, dragons and magic. And whenever I was eight years old at that point, so like, I'm probably going to like this game. So I, I talked to my mom about it, and she called the magazine. She found out where I could buy the game in my city. And then we just went there, you know, me, my mom, and a friend of mine. And we each bought a starter deck, my friend and I, and, and a booster, and then we just played. And I eventually some other friends from school also started playing and we played with them. Then at some point they all quit, they all stopped playing, but I never stopped. I started going to the store and kept on playing. That's amazing. What were those uh, first sets that you were playing? It was a fourth edition starter and a Homeland spec. That's so cool. Were, um, were they in English or Portuguese? They were in Portuguese. Wow. Yeah, everything was in Portuguese. Like the instructions manual was in Portuguese. That is so cool. And so you played with your friends. And um, eventually, how did you get better? Because I mean, looking at where you are today and how you got started, I mean, not everyone ends up to where you end up, but a lot of people start in kind of the same places where you started, Paolo. There were a lot of stages, I think. I think the first stage was probably when I started going to the store as opposed to just playing with my friends in school. Because when I played in school, we just didn't really know how the rules worked. Like we were, we were not really playing Magic, we were just playing a game that was similar to Magic, but like it's just our understanding as eight and nine year olds just wasn't very deep. Then I started going to the store and I learned that, you know, I learned the actual rules. I learned that there were tournaments I could compete in. I went to some of those tournaments. So that was probably the first leap. Uh, the second leap that I had was probably when I started playing online. So there was an online league. It was called Magic League. Uh, we, we used to play on Apprentice. And then they just had online competitions and I could talk to people all over the world. They would talk to me about decks that did well in the US, for example. And that gave me the chance to play, you know, all day if I wanted to, which you, can, you can't do in person unless you have someone playing with you. And in that league, I could do that. So that was probably the second leap that I had. And the third one was probably having a real life team. So when I started traveling to events, I met the US players in events and some players from Europe and Japan. And we started forming teams to practice for a tournament. And that's how I feel like I got to the level that I am now, practicing with those better players. That's amazing. Paulo, who were some of those people early on in your career that really influenced you? Oh, there were a lot. I think uh, for, for Magic specifically, like the the first person that was the biggest influence uh, was Rafael. He's the he was the son of the store owner, and he's now a TO. He just did Grand Prix São Paulo, so he's he's a TO right now. He used to be a high level judge. He would basically take care of me. He was like my older brother when we went to trips because I was so young, and someone had to do that. Then he would do that. He's a bit older than me. So he helped me a lot in that regard. Uh, when I started traveling internationally, I think uh, Julie Edel was probably the person that helped me the most mm-hmm. because, you know, he already knew all the logistics things and I had never really traveled much and he had traveled a lot. And so he was super helpful and he was part of my first team. Like my first team was just the Brazilians. Mm-hmm. So I, he was one of the people I started tasking with. Uh, when we went to Pro Tours and stuff. And that that probably Luis, uh, Scott Vargas, you know, who started Chain of Fireball. I, I was part of it when it started. Uh, and then like Luis invited me from the team. And that was probably the first time we really organized a team that wasn't just Brazilian with me. So it was, yeah, it was my first step into, you know, international professional testing, I guess, was because of Luis. That's so interesting. Paulo, when did you first meet Luis? It was GP Denver in, I believe it was 2004. Mm -hmm. I I was there with a friend who was a friend of his. And when I got to the site, they were playing Cube, you know, Cube Draft. And I had never seen Cube before. So I just sat there and I watched. And, you know, we talked a little bit because they were playing and I thought it was a fascinating format. So we talked a little bit. We didn't talk much after that uh, until we met on a flight. So it was a tournament. Uh, it was still in 2004. It was, I think it was Kobe. So we were going to Japan and I had a connection in Los Angeles or San Francisco, one of the two. And then they were in the same flight I was in from the US to Japan. So it was like a 12 hour flight. And then uh, at the time, the, the, the flight attendants, they just let us draft in the plane, which I don't <laughs> think they would let us do today. You know, the plane was pretty empty. We were just like sitting by the emergency exit, like drafting cube. So that was the, those were the first two big interactions I had with him. And then we became friends after that. Wow, that is so, you were just drafting cube with LSV like 14 years ago in an exit row. Yeah, pretty much. There were 
more people too. But yeah. Okay, there were more people too. Okay, so the so the uh, your the other people in the draft were also Magic players going to Kobe. Yes. Okay. Well, so it was just like random business people then. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, we were just all going to the same pro tour and happened to be on the same flight. At some point, LSV came to you and said, "Hey, you know, we're forming the first Channel Fireball team, and I'd like you to be a part of it." Yeah, that's basically how it went. At the time, I wrote for a Star CD. Uh, and then I, once Chain of Fireball uh, started, I moved to CFB, and both in writing and in testing. Paolo, what did it feel like to join a team like that so early on with someone like LSV? I mean, it was pretty good. Uh, at the time, LSV wasn't really LSV. <laughs> you know, he was like, people knew about him, but, you know, I was way more famous than he was at that time. Uh-huh. It was nice being part of something at the very beginning, but it wasn't like, you know, I was overwhelmed by it. I think almost everyone that was on the previous CFB team is in the Hall of Fame. Yes. <laughs> like the, the team is, the team ended up being, I think, the best team Magic's ever had by a lot. Like right. we were really dominant in the beginning. But when we started the team, we weren't. Mm-hmm. Like we were just good players, we were friends. So it was very interesting to grow as a team and then to see that everyone that was part of the original team just ended up being so good, in part because of that team. But when, yeah, when we started it, it wasn't like we were forming the super team. You know, the team only became a super team after we've already formed it. Fascinating. And so obviously it was you, Paolo and also Luis Scott Vargas. And who else was on that team with you guys? There were a lot of different attractions of the team, especially at first. Like some, you know, not everyone was qualified for the same thing. But I think the core of the team was was always me, Luis, and then a, a bunch of uh, US people who lived close to Luis that he knew. For example, people like, you know, Paul Chion, who was his friend already, and David Ochoa, Josh Adelaide. And, and at points we had Eric Froelich, uh, Brian Kibler, Gabe Walls. Uh, eventually we started, you know, Martin Juza played for, in our team uh, for a while. And it was it was mostly Americans, but it, it changed a lot. Like Ben Stark was part of one of the early teams too. So yeah, I don't think there is an official first roster for Team Channel Fireball because, you know, we've changed so much. Brad Nelson was in it at some point too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and for the listening audience, when you just kind of heard Paolo rattle off names on that list, I mean, what, 80, 90% of them are all Hall of Famers? <laughs> I mean, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, but at the time, no one was in the Hall of Fame. I think there even was a Hall of Fame. So it's it been a pretty interesting experience seeing the whole team grow. Paolo, can you share some of your more memorable experiences playing Magic either at the local level or professionally on the Pro Tour? I mean, I guess the most memorable experiences are always just tied to how I did in the tournament, I think, at least for the tournament. So like when we, the first time that I taught it at a PT was PT Charleston, mm-hmm. and it was a team's pro tour, it was team constructed. I think it was the only team's constructed pro tour we ever had. And it was just very overwhelming experience because not only did I do like very, very well in this thing, but also two of my friends did very well with me. Mm-hmm. So we, we, you know, we were all there, we could share it. And it was like kind of putting ourselves on the map in that tournament. So it was really important tournament for that. Uh, after that, there is, you know, the, the first worlds that I top aided later on that year with the whole Dragon Storm and Makihito Mihara thing where he, he made a mistake. Then I thought I was going to win. Then he drew the exact card he needed and I lost. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That was also, uh, you know, a, a, an overwhelming experience. It also helped me put myself on the map and, and establish that I could actually play at a high level like that. Uh, when I won the PT, uh, San Juan, that was, you know, sort of like the pinnacle. It was like, okay, there's nowhere else to go after that. You uh-huh. know, this is this is it. I won the, the biggest thing. I'm actually capable of doing that. Uh, when I got into the Hall of Fame in Seattle, uh, because it's like a, a, a lifetime achievement award, it's something that I'm going to take with me for my entire life. Right. So it kind of like immortalizes all that I've done in Magic. And then winning this last PT and, and being player of the year, which is something that I, I wasn't even considering. But once I got it, I, I was very happy about it. Just like you said, Paolo, like you were still surprised and in awe and really inspired in every single one of those moments. Like you top aided a, a big tournament and you're like, this is awesome. And then you get to the finals and you're like, this is still awesome. And you get to Worlds and you're like, this is awesome. And then you win a Pro Tour and you're like, wow, this is awesome. And you keep top aiding and you, and you won another Pro Tour and you're like, oh, wow, Player of the Year, another Pro Tour win. Like, this is amazing. Um, and then now you get to uh, put another achievement because now you're a guest on Kitchen Table Magic. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. But what's so fascinating is that you found inspiration and joy in every single one of these uh, experiences. I'm curious to know, Paolo, what influences do you have 
have either from your family or friends back at home, particularly like maybe your mother or father or siblings? Uh, none, really. <laughs> not, not when it comes to magic. Like my father and mother and my, my brother, uh, we used to play some card games uh, at some point when I was really young. But, you know, stuff like, you know, gin or whatever. I don't know how you would translate it like canastra. I don't know that's the game in the U.S., but just very like basic card games. We would play to pass the time, you know, when we're in, on vacation and it's raining, then uh, it's the card game night or whatever. And I really uh, enjoyed those all the time. I wanted to do it every time, but they never really liked it as much as I did. It was just something they did very sporadically. And for me, it was a lot different for me. I just really liked it and I would do it all the time if I could. So I don't think there is any influence for magic in my family or even friends. To be honest, it was mostly just me. Could you share a little bit more with us about Brazilian culture and some of the things that you love and maybe some things that you miss when you're out on the road? I think the, the thing that I would use to describe mostly Brazilian culture is that it's so diverse and so welcoming. People in other places, they're really cold a lot of the time to strangers, even to their friends and family. Like they don't show a lot of emotion. They don't, you know, they don't shout. They're just very controlled people. And we have no control. Like we, you know, <laughs> we're so like friendly and outgoing as a people in general. And we welcome everyone because there were a lot of immigrants in Brazil. So you have a, a very large like Japanese contingent like European American like you have you have everything in Brazil so you, you can find basically anyone here and we're all big mixes it's very hard to find a place that is so uh, like heterogeneous as Brazil is and that is so welcoming to strangers I think that part is really cool uh, and is a big part of our culture what I don't like very much is that uh, well it's not Exactly. Super safe. I think that is the the worst part about Brazil that, you know, I'm outside at 11 p.m. and I'm scared because there isn't that much security there. You know, there's that much accountability. It's just we're not a very rich country in a lot of ways, like Europe, Japan and the U.S. And we have a lot of poor people and, uh, you know, there isn't a lot of police. So in, in that regard, uh, I think that is probably the worst part of Brazil, at least for me. But I think I think we're great people. Brazilian food is also incredibly beautiful. Like I was reading that BuzzFeed article that, you know, you had posted on a long time ago, and I was just so enchanted by like all those different foods. And Brazilian food is quite different than Latin American food in general, Hispanic food, or and also American food. What are some things that you absolutely love to eat? I really like our desserts. Uh, I think the, the base of our desserts is condensed milk, which is something that you don't have a lot of in the U.S. Like it's usually more common in Japan and Hawaii. And then it just makes everything better. The, the consistency, the taste of condensed milk is so good. So like whereas in the U.S. you'd have something like an apple pie. You would just have like a condensed milk chocolate pie and it's so much better. <laughs> and That's so interesting. That is, that is one of the things that I miss uh, the, the most about Brazilian food when I travel. And our meat is really good. Like you see a lot of Brazilian steakhouses spread around the world, like Fogo de Chão, Texas to Brazil. Oh, yeah. And in a lot of places, you know, those those are really uh, upscale places. They're very, very expensive. And here they're a bit expensive, but not as much. And you can get, you know, a lot of good quality meat for way cheaper than you can get in the U.S. And recently you traveled to Japan for a Pro Tour Kyoto, of course, which you won. And uh, I mean, everyone in the magic community that was there was posting a lot of food pics. Were there some memorable food pics from Japan that you enjoyed? Yeah, there were. There was. I really like sushi. So sushi is probably my favorite food and it's not that easy to get good sushi where I live. So I went to, the, to, to Japan and I was like, okay, I'm going to eat sushi every day because it's great there. It's cheap. It's convenient. It's everywhere. But then not everyone likes sushi in our group and not everyone, you know, wanted to go there every day, like me, even the people that I did like it. So I couldn't go every day. But there are a bunch of pictures, uh, you know, there's one that Shuhei took when I wasn't looking or I just there's a bunch of sushi plates in front of me and I just look so chubby because <laughs> I've been eating for so long. And, you know, my, my mouth is full. I'm just smiling. It's, it's a really good picture. <laughs> that is too funny. Travel for you really has been some of the cornerstone of uh, some of your articles. You always do write a little bit about travel. And uh, recently, you even wrote about the time when you were trying to get a Japanese visa. And they almost didn't get, let you have a visa because of a DCI card. Yeah, that is true. The, the main problem in that was that uh, the person who won the PTQ got to the consulate before I did. And he had no idea what he had to bring. So he brought in every possible document, including a DCI card. You know, just a card that says has your DCI digits in it. We don't use it for anything. We never have. But he, he brought it to them. And then I was the person right after him. And they're like, okay, you're going to the same tournament as that guy, right? But where is your DCI card? 
And I'm like, well, I don't have it. And they're like, well, you have to. He has one. So why don't you? And then they just wouldn't believe me that I was going through the same. They just really demanded to see my DCI card. And I had to go back home. I had to search for it. And only when I found it, they gave me a visa. They sent me back home. It was very weird. Well, you know, Paolo, we do know that you travel quite a bit as a professional magic player. Um, and, you know, listeners, you can go online and do all sorts of searches on Paolo Vitor Diamond Rosa about your stats. But just a little bit of stats here for you, Paolo. I mean, you're the youngest player to reach 300 lifetime pro points. Yes, and I don't know that for a fact, but probably 400 and 500 too. That's incredible. Okay, yeah, and you were inducted into the Magic Hall of Fame in 2012. Yes, that was in Seattle. Yeah, that was in Seattle, yeah. And as of right now, I would say summer, fall of 2017, you have um, 12 top eights, currently putting you in second place, just behind John Finkel, and above the legendary Kai Buddha. Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> and <laughs> you're like, yeah, you're, it's almost like you like don't believe it either. Oh, I believe it. I mean, it's a wonderful achievement. I mean, as a player of this caliber, what kind of advice do you have for players that are aspiring to become professionals? Well, I mean, I think it's very hard to to get away from the just play a lot, try to play with people that are better than you, uh, read articles, watch videos, like all those things are things that you can do. Uh, one thing that I think a lot that I always say that most people don't do is that I think the best way to get better in something is to compete. So if you have a tournament that is close to you that you can go to, that is a, a more high level tournament, I think you should go and you should play, even if you don't think you're going to do well. Like we had a GP uh, in, in Sao Paulo this past week, and a lot of people were there just for side events. They were like, well, you know, I don't feel ready. I'm not great with this format. I don't want to embarrass myself. And I think that is a completely fine approach to have, but not the one you should have if you have competitive aspirations. Like, if you ever want to be one of those people winning GPs, you have to go and play while you're bad. There's just no way around it. It is how you get better. Uh, so just put yourself out there. And yeah, it's it's likely that you're going to lose a lot, but you're also going to learn so much more in that tournament than you will in side events or playing back home that it is worth it for your growth as a Magic player. Interesting. So really be in that competitive environment consistently to get used to it, to kind of understand these nuances. Yeah, I think you, you really must do that if you have competitive aspirations. You write a lot about strategy, particularly what's the play. You also do deck techs and tournament reports and things like that. So it is interesting because you said, you know, yeah, there is that aspect of play a lot. But, you know, a lot another aspect that I think that a lot of people don't think about is also perhaps to teach the game. You are a prolific writer and a prolific teacher and advocate for the game. And oftentimes there's this concept of if you're teaching something, you're also going to be ingraining those concepts more deeper for yourself. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, most of the time I try to write about things that uh, I would like to read. And a lot of that, it reinforces my strategy, my convictions, my beliefs. So even when I do stuff like what's the play, like I, I stop and I think about it for a long time, which I often didn't have time to think about in the match. And sometimes I'll, I learn new things too. So for example, there, there are points in which I'll go, okay, this is the play I made. But after thinking about it and talking to some people, this is the play I should have made. So I, I learned something in the process of writing about it. Fascinating. So you do have that flexibility intellectually to say, okay, well, this is what I would have done. But then after thinking and talking about it, you're like, mm, maybe I would change my mind. Yeah, I think you have to. <laughs> Magic is too hard for, for a person to be right all the time. Yeah, that is very interesting. In season one of Kitchen Table Magic, I interviewed Chris Pakula, meddling mage. And I think there was a very interesting line that Chris had said. He says, you know, playing with someone like John Finkel, John would say that there's always only one line. There's always the right play, and that's kind of the right play, and everything else is kind of suboptimal. Do you also experience that yourself? Because you said, you know, you are flexible in the way you think about certain lines of play. I think in the abstract perfect world, it is correct that there is one lane, there is like one play that is better and everything else is the wrong play. But I also think we're humans, we're not machines. And at, you know, when we're in a tournament, we have, you know, 30 seconds to think. We can't necessarily differentiate between the play that is 98% or the play that is 97%. Like, we, we, you know, we might never know which one of those two plays is correct. And what's more important than finding which one is correct between those two is making sure you don't make the play that is 50%. So while I agree that there is one play that is better and everything else is wrong, 
there are many degrees of wrong. So I think if you just make it a point to not be super wrong, like to make one of the good place as opposed to one of the bad place, then I think that's a better approach. I don't think you can hold yourself to, you know, I'll always make the perfect play. I think that is just too utopic. I think it's important to make good plays and, you know, sometimes try to search for a better play if you can, but a lot of the time you can't and you just, you know, don't make a bad play, I think is is a better advice. Fascinating. Okay, okay. Paulo, there are tangible things that players can do to get better, like practice and read up on the format and study. Are there some other tangible things that you would recommend that maybe three actionable things that players can do to get better immediately? I think it's really just about, you know, playing and learning and reading and watching things and thinking about things. Like, I don't think there's you know, a lot of people would be like, oh, you have to get enough sleep, you have to drink enough water, you have to, you know, eat enough and things like that. But I think that just heavily depends from person to person. And I, I really think that the only advice that you can give is just practice, practice more, practice better. What is something that you know that you don't think many other Magic players may know? I mean, I think one thing that is, uh, you know, it's very important and a lot of people... Maybe they know about it, but they don't fully adopt it. Is that uh, magic has a lot of variants, and the right play won't necessarily bring you the right results. But that doesn't mean you should stop making the right play. And I think it's very unintuitive that you know, oh, this deck won, but it's bad, or this deck lost, but it's good. Uh, and there is a like uh, a cognitive dissociation between those statements, and a lot of people just can't. They just don't see that those things are possible. So, you know, they play 10 games and they win seven and three and they think the matchup has to be favorable or they go three and seven. They think it has to be bad. But sample sizes in Magic are so small for the amount of luck and various things that exist in the game. Then you really just have to think about things. You have to, you know, it's more important to understand why things are happening. Okay, why do we go seven and three? Is that uh, something that is going to happen every time that we play or just happen that time? And things like that. So you, you have to really try to understand why things are happening as opposed to what is happening. And a lot of the players just focus on the what and not on the why. And then, okay, they understand exactly what happened. But if you change one tiny detail, then they won't be able to understand anymore because they don't know the reasons. And knowing the reasons is way more important than knowing what is happening. That's a very fascinating kind of intuition that you're providing. Thank you. Hmm. It definitely even gets me thinking about it a little bit. That's a great lead into my next question, which is recently you won Pro Tour Kyoto and uh, the field was playing a lot of red, a lot of mono red, a lot of Ramanap red, whatever we want to call it. There's quite a notable moment in the top eight against you and your opponent, Yan Wing Chun. There seems to have been a misplay. Well, not seems to. There was a misplay. For the listeners that may not know the context here, Yan Wing Chun was about to attack and was about to attack for the win. Uh, and uh, he had Hazaret on the board and two burn spells in his hand. And so the order of the sequence events was off, is that if he had played the spells, emptied his hand, then Hazaret would have been able to attack. But instead, Yan Wing Chun went to the attack phase and went to swing. And the judges said, nope, you got to pull that back. You're in your attack phase. And both of the burn spells were sorceries. Now, in that moment, Paulo, you were very calm. You were very collected. You were not like jumping like, oh, great, this is an opportunity for me. But you were like, okay, something is happening here. And you're very carefully thinking about it. And you really are asking yourself why. I mean, looking at the footage on the coverage, I could really see your face be like, hmm, like you're like, "Uh oh, something's happening here. What are your thoughts as a professional player and a really experienced manager? Like, what is your thoughts as a competitor in that moment? Well, at that moment, it's just I I knew exactly what was happening because I heard uh, the audience cheer when he drew the card. And then, you know, he tried to attack and I saw how flustered he got when he couldn't. So at, at that point, it was easy to piece together exactly what was in his hand because it was the only things that would make sense that would prompt that reaction. And then at that point, I'm just thinking, okay, you know, I, I lost. At, at first, when they cheered, I thought I lost a game. That's unfortunate, but it happens. You know, I've got gotten quite far already. It, it won't be the first time that I, I lose in this top eight. I can deal with it. But then once it became clear that he made a mistake, then I started thinking, well, I'm actually not that. I might actually win. I'm actually a favorite to win at this point. I still not a lock to win. You know, I still have to, you know, now I have this information that my opponent has those cards and I have to play well so that I can win with this information because I could still lose the game after that. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it depended on, you know, draws and the way I played. You know, I was more focused on how am I going to play after this happened than what exactly had happened. Because, you know, I knew what had happened. He drew the card he needed and then he messed up. And then now he has to figure out how he's going to deal with that. And I have to figure out how I'm going to play after that. 
But then also what I thought was fascinating about your opponent was that um, after Yan Wing Chun made the misplay, he locked in his focus again. He brought it right back and said, okay, what are my lines? What can I do right now? And that was an incredible moment that I think a lot of people may not have seen or may not have appreciated fully. That moment was of tremendous respect, in my opinion, because I was like, wow, the ability to do something like that. Yeah, it's definitely important, but everyone's going to make mistakes. You know, it it won't always be uh, such a big mistake, such a costly mistake as the one he made. That's probably one of the, you know, more costly mistakes in the history of magic. But we're all going to make mistakes, big or small. And we, we can't we can't avoid that. You know, we're never going to be perfect. So how you behave after you make the mistake is really important. Because all the time, even though you made a mistake, you can still win. And if you only keep your composure. So I think it's really important to be able to react in a mature way. It's a lot like when, you know, a figure skater falls and then they just get back together and they continue their routine because, you know, that's what they can do. They've already fallen. They can't take that back. They can go back in time, but they can still make the best routine that they can after that. And that is what they focus on. And that's what we as magic players have to focus on, playing the best we can after we made the mistake. And then, you know, once the tournament's over, once the match's over, you can start thinking about, okay, why did I make this mistake? How can I stop it from making, you know, myself from making it again? But you really just have to focus on the moment, I think, and how you're going to move forward. One thing that I've heard from you that I've also heard from many other pros is that um, one of the distinguishing factor between an average magic player and a legendary magic player is that the legendary magic player is always open to asking why. We lost. Now what? But that's okay, because what are we learning from it and what are we going to do about it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's important to ask why. And it's also, I think, very important and a bit understated to understand that there won't always be a reason. Uh, you know, a lot of the time you just lose because you lost. Because, you know, even the best players in Magic only win 65% of their games and there is nothing you could have done. And while it's important for your personal growth to understand a lot of times you could have done something and to try to find what it is, it's also important for your sanity to know that you're not in full control and it's not your fault every time that you lose. Wise words, Paolo. I also wanted to ask you, what advice do you have for new or novice players just starting off playing Magic? I think Magic, uh, it appeals to a lot of different people and you can really just have magic be whatever you want it to be for you. So for some people, magic is uh, a hobby. For some people, they just have fun. Some people like the competitive. Some people want to be professionals and want to be the best they can be. And I think all those approaches are fine. But you should kind of identify which one you want and then group together with people that have the same mindset as you. Because if you are the person that is super serious and trying to you know, win your PTQ to go to the PT and your, your group of friends who plays with you uh, they aren't like that. They just want to play commander and have, you know, a symbol, a 10-10. And that is that is fine, but you're not going to be very compatible as far as magic playing goes. So if you have those competitive aspirations and the people around you do not, then you should probably try to find a different group that appeals to exactly what you want. Or it would be very hard for you to, to get past a certain step. So I think, you know, you, people can enjoy magic in many different ways and there's no right or wrong, but it's probably important for you to understand what you want from it and then go after that specifically. You've been in the community for quite a while um, as a leadership figure, as a professional figure, as a competitive player. What do you think is missing in the community right now? I think it depends on what sort of community you're talking about. Uh, if we're talking about the competitive community, uh, the professional community, I think what is missing is probably just bigger price support. Uh-huh. Uh, because if you know, you look at games like League of Legends, Dota, you know, uh, Hearthstone, and those games have enormous price supports. And Magic is not a small game. Like Magic, you know, has a lot of players. It sells a lot. And we don't necessarily see the return in that as much as people do in other games. So it's very hard. You know, you look at a tournament and it's being streamed and a Magic tournament has 10,000 viewers. And then you look at the top Hearthstone streamer of that same time and that person alone has 20,000 viewers. So in, in that regard, as an esports, Magic is just not as big as the other ones. And I think that's part of what is missing. So I'll wait for you, I'll wait for you to grow and for magic players to be streamers. Like right now, it's very hard for a magic player to be a full-time streamer and make a good living because there just aren't that many people watching and the, the tournament price isn't as big. So it's kind of like you need to complement it with something, but it's very hard to do that. So I think just more money in, in the professional game would be what the professional scene is missing right now. Uh, as far as the community itself, uh, I wish there were more women playing, but I think that's something that's been growing a lot. Uh, you know, Magic's always been a male-dominated game, especially at the competitive professional level, but that's starting to change. We have a lot of women working at R&D now, we have women doing commentary, we have women doing welling tournaments. 
So hopefully this is just uh, a win and not a nif. Like I think there may be a time where, you know, a woman goes to a tournament and she's not the woman. You know, she's just a person because there are other 50 women there in the tournament. So hopefully we can get to that. We can have a more, you know, diverse and tolerant community. I think that would, but I think we're taking steps in that direction already. Yeah, absolutely. I do see a tremendous growth in the magic community right now. And like you said, it's not an if, it's a when. We know it's going to happen, but we just have to get there. Paulo, I mean, your stats are absolutely incredible. And you've basically done everything on the pro player bucket list. <laughs> I mean, you're in the Fall of Fame. You have uh, have the second most top eights. You've got a whole bunch of pro tour wins. What are your goals right now moving forward as a pro player? I want to be world champion. Uh, that has been my goal for... I mean, I have two goals. Uh, realistically, the goal is to be able to continue playing Magic for a living, which usually means being platinum or at the very least gold, which is the point where I just start paying for your plane tickets. You don't have to spend as much money. And like platinum has guaranteed income. So that is the main goal. But like the goal goal is being uh, world champion. Because I think of all the Magic titles is the one that's easiest to relate to outside of Magic. Like Because if I tell people that I want a Pro Tour, that I top eight at a Pro Tour, that doesn't mean much if I tell my classmates, you know, my my uncle, they don't fully understand what it means. Like they don't they don't know how good I am if I did those things. But if you tell someone that you're a world champion, it doesn't matter the background, it doesn't matter anything, they'll know what it means. They'll know that of everyone in the world you did the best. Like you you won the world championship. It's something that you know everyone can relate to. And so few people have around the world like who's a world champion? What percentage of the population is the best in the world at anything? Like it's such a small percent. And it's a talent I really want for myself to be able to tell other people who are not necessarily magic players when they ask, you know, how are you doing the tournament i'm like i'm the world champion and i think that has a lot of meaning has a lot of power and something that i've wanted to be able to say for a very long time and never could so that is my my main goal fascinating fascinating okay okay what's next for you what's coming up on the horizon either personally or professionally uh well professionally uh i'm going i'm going to take about a month off then i'll go to gp providence which is at the end of september and then right after that there was worlds in boston so the, the most important tournament of the year uh, is coming up. I plan on preparing a lot for that. Personally, I'm at a point in my life where I'm starting to, you know, become an adult, I guess. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're currently looking at houses to my girlfriend and I so that we can move in together. And we're looking at uh, wedding details. So it's it's going to be a big change in my life. And hopefully at some point in like two years, I'm going to have kids. Wow. I say I'm growing up, I guess, finally becoming an adult. Wow, that's fantastic. So, I don't know, Paolo, are you announcing your engagement to your girlfriend on air right now? <laughs> or this is something <laughs> that you've talked about before? Or Oh, no, we've definitely talked about it. Uh, we we aren't like formally engaged yet, but we know we'll get married. So, like, we, are, we don't have a date. Okay. Uh, I feel like engagement in the U.S. might be a little bit different than the way I perceive it. Because to me, you're engaged when you have a wedding date and you have wedding preparations. Like, you know you're getting married at this point and this place and those people are inviting then the period between you arranging all that and you getting married, you're engaged. Uh, and in the U.S., I feel like people get engaged for many, many years. They're like, OK, we're engaged, but what changed? Nothing. It's a little bit more serious than their uh, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend, and a little bit less serious than, than married. But it doesn't have a time frame. It doesn't have anything. So at, at this point for us, uh, we know we're going to get married. So but we don't know any of the details yet. We're still working on that. So I don't consider us engaged. Oh, okay. Okay. But it isn't like you got down on one knee and proposed yet. No, I haven't done that yet. <laughs> okay. I don't know if I will. She wants me to do it. It's, <laughs> it's not a Brazilian custom. It's an, it's an American custom. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. But I haven't done that yet. It just feels weird to propose when we're not living together yet. So I kind of want to wait for that. What would be like a Brazilian tradition for that proposal? I mean, it really depends on the person. The way I see it in my mind, I always imagined that we would just be hanging out in the couch one day watching tv and be like hey did you do you, do you want to get married and yeah sure let's do it you know and then <laughs> something that you know really a, a couple's thing and the way i feel like in the u.s it, it's like the guy is asking for something and the girl is giving it to him and you know i'm not it's something that we're both doing it's going to be good for both of us we both want to do it's not something that i'm i'm proposing and you're accepting you know it's something that together we we reach this this thing. So the, the U.S. version has always felt very, uh, you know, two separate things. Like I'm proposing this and you're accepting as opposed to together we've reached this agreement that we want to do it. 
but I understand it's not like that for her. So I'll, I'll, I'll do what she wants. <laughs> that's wonderful. Uh, that's so funny. Yeah, Paulo, you're like, you were like describing like the concept of like Netflix and proposal. <laughs> like, that is how I imagined it, honestly. <laughs> but like, it's so important for her and it doesn't really matter to me, you know, uh, so I'll, I'll do I'll do what she wants because it's important for her. But it's funny to me that she, she has this idea because of American movies, mostly, I think. That's so but interesting. Yeah, and <laughs> it's, if it's important, I'll happily do it. That is so great. Well, awesome. Well, I'm very happy for that. And I know that uh, your life is just going to be absolutely wonderful. So, okay, everyone, we're going to have more from Paolo coming right up. But first, a quick break from our sponsors. Last week, rapper and musician Billy the Fridge gave me a signed copy of his album Old Fashioned and two of his Billy the Fridge Magic Card tokens to give away. I randomly selected winners from my Patreon supporters and I'm here to announce the winners. The two winners of the Billy the Fridge Goblin tokens are Alexander and Trevor. And the winner of the signed album is James L. I'll be sending those out to you very soon. Congrats on the lucky winners and thank you to everyone for your generous support of the show. If you'd like to receive gifts from my guests, become a supporter at patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Thank you so much for your support on Patreon. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic was brought to you by Paragon City Games. The Kitchen Table Magic podcast has been all about the origins of the game and members of the community. And as a community, we've come a long way since the game first started. Apart from the kitchen table, the only other places in your local community to play Magic are at local game stores. And that's why places like Paragon City Games is so important for our community. At Paragon City Games, you'll find a spacious and clean showroom with lots of elbow room for Magic events. You'll find thoughtful accessories like die-hard metal dice and handcrafted wooden boxes. You'll find a huge supply of legacy, modern, and standard staples, sealed product, and tabletop games. It's places like Paragon City Games that allow local communities to gather in. And if you can't make it there in person, please be sure to watch their weekly stream at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames. Remember to spread the love with a like on Facebook and a follow on Twitter for Paragon City Games. They also have great online reviews and that shows their commitment to excellent customer service for their player community. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Card Kingdom. Cardkingdom.com is a great place to shop for Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, pre-constructed decks, and gaming accessories. They have a huge selection of singles, from the latest sets to an ever-flowing supply of modern and legacy staples. Card Kingdom also loves to buy Magic cards. They'll offer you cash or in-store credit for your Magic singles. And if you're new to Magic, you'll love playing any one of the 36 new pre-constructed battle decks built by Card Kingdom. Sign up for Card Kingdom's email newsletter to receive coupon codes and deck techs by Magic Pro Chris Van Meter. You'll get access to Card Kingdom's private reserve, which are special deals for chase rares at significantly discounted prices. Card Kingdom has so much to offer, so I hope you'll check them out. And if you'd like to support Kitchen Table Magic when shopping at Card Kingdom, please use our affiliate link. Just go to cardkingdom.com KTM. Okay, everyone, and we are back. Paolo, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? All right. Yes, I'm ready, I think. Okay, great. Paolo, rapid fire question number one. Of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, what's your favorite color and why? Blue is my favorite color. I think I've always just uh, liked the mind stuff. If I, were, if I were a wizard, I would probably have mind powers and just really the type of thing that blue does. It's always... It's always fascinated me, and the play pattern for blue is also, I think, the most interesting. So both from a flavor perspective and a competitive perspective, like blue usually offers you the most choices. So I've, it's just it's just the best color. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, your history playing um, the fairies deck, it's blue, it's aggro, it's got a lot of control elements in it. Um, are there some other blue decks that you've really enjoyed playing in your career? Yeah, I really one of my favorite decks is Counter Rebel. Uh, it's a blue white deck that relied on you know a bunch of counter spells and the rebel creature type. So what you would do is you would pass the turn, and if they cast something, you would counter it. And if they didn't, or if they cast something dead, 
you just use one of your rebels to search for a different rebel and put it into play. And it just, you know, cards like Remotion Sergeant, Link CV. So it just kept scaling up and up. And I really like this type of deck because it just gives you so many choices. I like choices. I like letting my opponent make the play and then reacting to that. And I think Blue does that. And Contra Rebel is a deck that did that. Ferris did that. Uh, I also like, uh, you know, the Blue-Eyed Millstone when I was younger. Just... Just countering a bunch of things, killing a bunch of things, and killing them with millstone. So I've enjoyed a lot of blue decks. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah, just kind of milling them out. That's really cool. That's really cool. Paulo, if you could pair blue with another color or uh, other color combinations, what would it be? Depends on what for. Uh, normally, I like blue, black, and blue, white. But I don't know. I'll play blue anything. I'll play anything for that matter. Like, I want to be clear when I say I prefer blue. Like, this, like, if you could wish for a deck to be the best, what color would that be? And I'd say blue. But I'll play whatever I think is best. So I think blue usually pairs the least well with green. But all the other combinations are okay. Yeah, I hear that, especially because you won that last Pro Tour playing mono red. So <laughs> you're happy yeah. playing the best. That's awesome. Okay, Paolo, rapid fire question number two. If you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? Um, can I save more prize support? <laughs> yeah, of course you can. You can say whatever you want to say. Yeah, then I guess I'm going to go with more prize support. It's, it's a bit selfish of a change, but it's like if you're asking me, you know, uh, what do you think has to be changed the most in Magic for for your life, then that would be just more price support. Okay, sounds good, sounds good. Paolo, rapid fire question number three. If you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? I mean, I think I, I would probably just give every Magic player opportunity uh, to, you know, for those who want to play competitively to do so. Because in the US, you have a lot of opportunities. You have 20 GPs, you have 20 PTQs that you can go to. So everyone that is good ends up doing well at something and, you know, breaks out. So if someone is good in the US, you will find them. The same way that, you know, someone is good in League of Legends in Korea, you will find this person because there's all the support, there are all the chances. So everyone who's good is being found. But for people who are good in other places, including Brazil, like you don't have a lot of shots. So you, you have one tournament in, in a year. And then if you do badly in that one, which is definitely possible, uh, then you're out. And then you have to wait for next year to try again. And I wish it wasn't that way. I wish everyone had, you know, all the competitive, all the people with competitive aspirations had the chance to prove how good they are. And that's not necessarily true. So I guess that, but it also doesn't apply to every Magic player because a lot of Magic players don't even have competitive aspirations. And a lot of them have those aspirations, but have the chances. So I don't know what I would give to everybody. That's really interesting. Okay, okay. Paolo, rapid fire question number four. What do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? I don't know. I think what I'm hoping the future is, is that Magic is super famous. And then, you know, it's it becomes like League of Legends, like, you know, soccer, maybe. That is what I, I hope the future is, that someone who's a good Magic player is actually a famous person and not just a famous Magic player, that we can stream and we can get 20,000 viewers and we can make a great living out of that. And, you know, that you know, we can release books that people will buy and stuff like that. So that is my dream vision for what Magic uh, will be in the future. I don't know if it will happen. I don't know if it can happen. Uh, I don't really see anything really, just what I just what I want to happen. And last, Paolo, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience, like where they can find you on social media? Well, you can find me. On, I think the best way to find me is just Twitter, uh, MPVDDR. So the initials for Paolo Fischer and Amanda Rosa. Well, you can also find me on Chain of Fireball. I write every week, chainoffireball.com. And sometimes more than once a week. So it's really easy to find me there. And I read everything that people post. So if you send me a message, if you just post a comment and article, I, I will very likely see it. So yeah, it's really easy to reach me. Well, I'm going to have all of the links in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org to uh, Paolo's Twitter handle, also the articles and everything like that. Paolo, I just wanted to thank you so much for spending some time to be here with us and share your stories and share your insights. You're a very important person for the Magic community, um, not only as like a competitive player, but an international competitive player, you know, being from Brazil. I really appreciate everything you've done for the Magic community in terms of teaching people how to play Magic and also kind of allowing everyone to kind of think more deeply and level up. I'm so happy that you've achieved so many things that you've wanted to achieve. You know, you're a Hall of Famer. That's amazing. You recently won Pro Tour Kyoto. Congratulations. And uh, thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for everything that you do for the Magic community. No, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity.
you know, a lot of people who watch and who, who root for, for us, the players, and who are emotionally invested in that, uh, don't realize how important that actually is for us. Because, you know, okay, when I'm playing Magic, I'm playing for myself. Like, if I win, I win. If I lose, I lose. So it's really about me. But it also matters that other people are invested in it. So like a lot of people, you know, congratulated me and for this tournament and they said they were watching and they were nervous when it looked like I was going to lose. And they were happy when I was going to win and, you know, disappointed when I lost in other tournaments. And I think that's really important for us. That really matters. Like knowing that what I do matters to other people, that other people are emotionally invested in it uh, is really important to me. So I would like to thank everyone who, you know, follows our careers and supports us and even who dislikes us for, for a reason or another. Yeah, you're part of the thing that makes it all worth it. I think it probably wouldn't be worth it if no one else cared about it, if it was just for us. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Paolo. Go say hi to him on Twitter at PVDDR. You can also read his articles that he posts on Channel Fireball. I'll have all of the links in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Thanks everyone for listening to this week's show. I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters, Brian, Marcus, James L, Alex, Trevor, Caitlin, Mark, Aaron M, Neil, James G, Aaron C, Jonathan, Corey, Chad, James E, Logan, The Magic Man Sam, Jesse, Ben, Nick, Eternal Dirtles, Matthias, Charlie, Geraint, Scryfall, Matt, Ian, Priscovi, and Ryan. Listeners, if you'd like to get special gifts from my guests, become a supporter at patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Your financial contribution goes to making the show better and helping to keep it running by paying for audio equipment, software, and server costs. And now that I've partnered with Card Kingdom, there's a new way to support the show. When you shop at Card Kingdom, just use my affiliate link, cardkingdom.com slash KTM. A big thank you again to all of my Patreon supporters. Your support of Kitchen Table Magic allows me to share stories about the amazing people in the Magic the Gathering community with the world. If you haven't heard already, I've created a new YouTube channel called Play MTG. It's an upbeat, fast-paced YouTube channel featuring deck techs from the pros, learn-to-play tutorials, level-up advice, card discussion, community news, and more. Just go to youtube.com slash C slash PlayMTG. Special thanks to Dev for the shout-out on his YouTube channel that helped me get a bunch of new subscribers. I really appreciate your support, Dev. Follow the channel on Twitter at play underscore MTG. It's also on Facebook at facebook.com slash play MTG, all one word. I'm looking forward to creating new content and I've got some collaborations and new videos in the works. Be sure to subscribe to Kitchen Table Magic on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Hipsters of the Coast, and mtgcast.com. Follow the show on Twitter at KTM Podcast. The show is on Facebook.com slash Kitchen Table Magic Podcast. All of the show notes are at kitchentablemagic.org. If you're new to the show, there's plenty of past episodes to listen to, and please be sure to share KTM with a friend. Coming up on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. It was incredible, really. Like I saw, I saw a lot of the reaction. Like I saw people were talking about it on Reddit and everything, and like all the support was even more overwhelming than than the actual moment. I feel, you know, I, I didn't really know like how big the reaction was. Like, like my phone was going crazy for like literally hours on end. Like it took me two days to you know really like get through all the messages and all that stuff. And yeah, it was crazy. And um, got to play on that stage because I always you know I always thought about it. Like I always thought about like man, like I just want to know what it's like to play on Sunday. I want to like when they announce the top eight, you know, because after being at so many pro tours, basically the way you know on Saturday once once the last Swiss runner is over like everyone gathers around the, the feature match area one by one like they announce everyone who we top aided after you know witnessing that so many times there's definitely been multiple times where I always thought to myself like will I ever get there you know will my name ever be called up to play on Sunday I was just incredibly happy just motivated to get back there again you know I'm talking to pro player and all-around great guy, Christian Calcano. Christian was emotional as his team cheered for him in his first Top 8 appearance at Pro Tour Amonkhet. Christian said that it was particularly meaningful because he was being interviewed by Brian David Marshall, the past owner of Neutral Ground, the game store where Christian started playing Magic. Christian talks to us about his early days and his life as a professional Magic player and more, all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic.